Welcome to Real Herbalism Radio, show 239, recorded at Big Dog Studio in Eugene, Oregon. Today's show is made possible by... If you'd like to learn more about making herbs a practical part of your daily life, pop on over to The Practical Herbalist and take a look at the many articles, the opportunities to learn, and you can get all of the podcasts from Real Herbalism Radio there too. That's thepracticalherbalist.com. Now here are your hosts... I'm Candace Hunter. I'm Patrick Hunter. And, and welcome, welcome to, to Real Herbalism, Herbalism Radio. Hey, Candace. Hey, Patrick. How you doing? I love DiMaggio's teas. Yeah. And I am not an herbal tea guy. I know. I know. It surprises me every time. Like when I brewed up the angel tea for you last night. Oh, my God. The whole kitchen filled up with, 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 with that smell. I was stunned. I was like, what the heck? You know? Yeah. And um, – it was so nice. It was, and it was funny because out of the three that he did send us, he yeah. sent us a bo- his box, his three box, and I think there's Tiger and there's Angel and then there's some other one I can't remember. But we've had the other two, and we had didn't have Angel until mm-hmm. last night, and I think the Angel was the best of the bunch. <laughs> so of course you do. Maybe it was maybe it was because I needed it. Maybe there was something there. Um, because whatever. I mean, because sometimes that is the case. You know, the medicine that or herbs that we don't need, our body's like, yeah, I don't like this. Oh. And the herbs that we do need, it's surprising how much you're like, oh, this is really sweet. I mean, you've come Tastes up to so me good. with like, taste this vervain. And I'm like, oh, God. And you're like, oh, it's so good right now. I'm like, then you need it. Because <laughs> right. I don't need it. And wow, I don't you. I think I think it was the mints and the Melissa that is in Angel Tea that were probably two of the big ones for you because you are always – you are like a minty fellow. Yeah. I mean I like mint. Don't get me wrong. And, mm-hmm. you know, mint and Melissa, I love lemon balm and I love that lemony flavor without the the citricky, you know, the citrus of it. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoy that. You know, and after looking again at the at the jar herbs and how colorful and, and, and so well put together, you got to me thinking back about what he was talking about is you know that biodynamic farming and the mm-hmm. ability to let the herbs you know exist amongst the other plants and not give them a great life. Right. Yeah, so, we weren't we were not meant to live in mono, monocultures. Neither were the plants. No. That's not how they evolved. No, not at all. So when you get a field of uh of um Oh, echinacea, for instance, mm-hmm. and it's all cultured out, and there's not a single other plant than echinacea in there. It's not that they, it's not going to be a decent plant or harvest, but it's just nowhere going to be near as potent as that same plant in the wild, or right. you know, in an area where it's not treated as you know, where we're watering it, and we're fertilizing it, and we're making yeah. it this, we're making it that, and we're giving it a good life. I mean, and I always bring this example back to it, and that's grapes and wine. Yeah. Every time someone says it was a great year for this, it was because there was, there was a drought, there was a drought, or there or, was a hurricane, yeah, or there was or a there frost was... late, or there was a whatever, depending on the yeah. on the on the there wine or the grape. But, the grapes. but there's something that stressed the grapes. I mean, I think about our even our grape plants. We don't water them. No, we don't do anything, and they mm-hmm. they flourish and they go to town. And by the time that they're and they're starting to to come about, they're sweet. Mm-hmm. They're really really good. And the year that we had a really wet summer. They, they were good. nearly as good as they are now. Yeah. You know, so yeah. you need that stress. And, you know, to be to be fair. To be fair. It's like people. You know, people are really discovering intermittent fasting as being the yeah. one of the keys for weight loss and also health. 
And, you know, back in the day when we were, you know, running around harvesting, you know, twigs and berries, we were fasting all the time. Yeah. Because you never knew where the next meal was coming from. So you would forage and eat and eat and eat and then you would you would go on a period of time where you wouldn't. And I think our problem now isn't that we have a lack of food. We have right. an abundance of food. I mean, every single moment there's food around us. You know, good food, bad food, doesn't matter. It's there. There's calories everywhere. Right. Right? Yeah. We, so we never put our bodies through any kind of serious, real stress, really. Right. I mean, right. and, I'm, and I, I, again, this is our area, our country, not, I mean, I'm sure there's areas there's in the areas world. There's areas in the where, world yeah, where people that's not, struggle yeah, for I mean, food. Yeah. We're very lucky where we live. You know, without, I'm telling you that we have this many calories. Right. But in general, the American diet, there's just calories everywhere. Right. And we don't have, I mean, our, like the vegetables in our diet, even if you go completely vegan, as we actually mostly have done, even if you go completely vegan, if you're buying your vegetables from the store, you're probably not getting biodynamic vegetables, which no. means you need to eat considerably more poundage of vegetables to get the same amount of nutrients than, you know, even our ancestors of only like three generations ago. You know? Well, I think about our very modest garden. Mm -hmm. Our tomatoes are so much better than the store-bought tomatoes. Our um, chard is better than the store-bought tomatoes. Our um, cucumbers are even better than the store cucumbers. I mean, right, the right. cucumbers, they have that same kind of flavor and they're always watery. And they're, uh, But ours have like, you know, the skin changes differently. It has a thicker, you know, flesh in there. The seed, the, the moisture in the seed, it's just totally different. Yeah. And that's that idea because, I mean, we're not – we're not really friendly to our to our crops. I mean, they get a lot of sun. We water them occasionally. We might forget it for a little while, and maybe uh -huh. we'll throw some coffee grounds over there at them or whatever. But um, yeah, we're really agree. crappy gardeners. Yeah. I mean, in we comparison to people I know, I mean, our right. neighbors are really really good compared to us. Oh yeah, most, really good. Most every other gardener on the face of the earth you know. is probably really caring and loving to their plants compared to us. Right, and and I'm I'm mm -hmm. sure their bounty is higher than ours. Yeah, but that's what I guess I'm saying is that the bounty doesn't have to be great if all of the things that are happening to to, to develop really really rich foods. Yeah, you know. Well, and part of that is like Tony said, is the soil health. So if you have multiple different plants going into your mulch, essentially multiple different plants growing together. Their different roots, their different needs, contributing to the micro, microbial, micro, I would have the microbiome. No, no. the it's the the fungi in the soil, mm -hmm. the fungal network in the soil, microbial. I always say it wrong. Okay, but anyway, contributing to that, you've got all these different plants contributing to it. It makes that network stronger. It makes the soil healthier. Yeah, one thing he, he did and that point gives out. you more nutrients. Right. Right, you know, right so. because what he was pointing out is that the plants don't just take from the soil. Yeah. They give back. They give back. Yeah. And that was important because I never, I never really thought about that before. Yeah. Well, I mean that's part of where like when I look at his angel tea, he's developed it for calming and for nourishment. And the nourishment part is things like the oats and the nettle that are in there. And the no oats and nettle coming out of his farm – are most likely going to be nutritionally far superior to those that are coming out of one of the large monoculture farms that sourced are sourced by a lot of herbal companies. Oh, yeah. And, you know, that's quality versus quantity. And personally, I'm, I 
go for quality anytime I can. I can't always afford it, but you know, when I can, I go for it. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the other thing too is that um, being able to afford some of the stuff does. You know, you have to make those decisions as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, but doing your own gardening helps you to be able to afford that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in your own garden, you don't have to plant all of your tomatoes in one spot and all of your beans in yet in a different spot. You can intersperse in your corn somewhere else. Mm-hmm. You can put the three together, which is in all honesty, that's one of those native practices, at least of the Pacific Northwest. And I think it's larger, a larger regional. It's not just a regional practice of planting, you know, companion planting essentially. Right. You know, because the plants help each other out. Be like marigolds and tomatoes. Yeah. Yeah. Like marigolds. I never understood how they did that before. Like how that worked until talking with Tony. Like, oh, the marigolds do something to the soil Mm -hmm. that helps the tomatoes next time around or whatever. Right. 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 Or like I think when we did one year where we planted tomatoes and basil plants in the same, like it was tomato, basil, tomato, basil, tomato, basil, because I had read somewhere that they were good. They were good companion plants. Yeah. So. Yeah. Not, not only that, but they teach really good together, so I guess. They do. Yeah. So I guess maybe that's And they, I, they do like similar conditions. They both like the hot, the hot, the heat. Yeah. Yeah. Both Mediterraneans, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, one was South American, right? And then it got over to Italy and Italy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I just know that tomatoes and basil both require really hot days or they seem to like really hot days. They prefer more consistent heat. In our area, we often have the temperature drop. Um, at night? At night, yeah. considerably. You know, so during the daytime, you're, you know, sweater or you're in shorts and you're fanning yourself off because it's too hot. But at night, you're putting on your jeans and a, and a sweater because it's gotten pretty cold. You know, it's chilly. We yeah. usually have that kind of temperature change. You have a 30 degree shift sometimes. In and the tomatoes and basil don't really like that very much. Uh, where we came from, where I grew up, in Minnesota area and in Michigan and Pennsylvania. I know my grandmother's garden was the same. All of those areas, you put your tomato plants in and you don't want them too crowded because it'll they won't grow well. Those areas also don't have the same radical temperature shift from daytime to nighttime. Not really, not in the heat of summer. No. Right. And I so I took me a very long time because I am such a lousy gardener. <laughs> but <laughs> but you know, I tried I kept trying different ideas about how to plant our tomatoes and have them produce well. And I know other people out here seem to do okay with them. Mm-hmm. And I'm unwilling to do things like get out a cloche and put it on at night and then off by day because I'm too lazy. I'm not gonna yeah, get like that. I say done. we miss watering, so yeah. But this year I put all of our tomatoes in a very small – they're very crowded. And it was because I had too many tomatoes and I have had didn't have the heart to throw any of them, of them out. Mm-hmm. So I have six tomatoes that are crowded into the space that I would have otherwise used for like three and a half or four tomato plants if I was in Minnesota mm-hmm. growing gardening there. So I crowded six of them in and then I used one fence-like – device to have them trellis on the all six on the same fence like it's down the center of the two groups of three and then on the end of that particular space I had just enough space to have two traditional cages so I had the traditional tomato cages with the tomatoes in them those ones aren't doing very good yeah but I'm wondering if they're all taking the all crowded the... ones are very happy yeah I was thinking about that maybe it's because there's a Inherent like ultra microclimate around yeah. all the ones that are thing where they they stay cool and I, I think, think those two at the end like 
like shelter the other ones from that direct south sun that we get? (laughs) (laughs) I think that I'm pretty sure that the tomatoes that are doing really well are doing really well because they're holding their heat through the night much more longer. They're protecting each other. Right. And that's causing them all to flourish. And the two on the end are too cold at night. Hmm. Whereas back, you know, in the gardens of my youth, you needed to have the space because those were all warm climates, not southern warm, you know, not mm-hmm. not Florida hot, but but they were warm and they were very humid climates. Yeah. So the plants needed space to breathe. Otherwise, they overheat and that was not good and they never cooled down much at night there because of all the humidity. So I'm, my, my personal current working theory is plant your tomatoes really close together if you live in the Pacific Northwest. See mm. if that works. So you're saying crowd them. Crowd them a bit, yeah. Crowd them up. Well, it's a heck of an experiment. I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying going by and picking one occasionally and, yeah. you know, in, in that. So, I mean, it's uh, – like I say, plants um, are going to develop potent medicine when they're under stress versus when they've got everything they need. Yeah. Just like when we were going back talking about people intermittent fasting, I think that's yeah. what they've discovered is that they're they're getting healthier by eating less because they don't need to yeah. eat more. Well, and I think the other thing too, at least, I mean, I was reading a book called Grow a New Body by Alberto Veloto. Okay. And he was talking about intermittent fasting. And what he essentially said was if you devote no more than six hours to eating in the day, that doesn't mean you eat it for six hours straight. But right. But his version of intermittent fasting is you have lunch or breakfast or whatever you want to call it at noon and then you eat whatever meals make sense for you through the day and at 6 p.m. you have your last meal at or before and then you don't eat again until the next day at noon. Mm -hmm. What you're giving yourself with that schedule is – what does that come out to? 18 hours of – Yeah, 18 18 off. Yeah, 18 hours of fasting – during which time your body finishes its digestion surprisingly quickly and then it spends about 12, 12 or 14 hours or so um, really focusing on repairing your systems, repairing parts of your body, repairing organs, detoxifying anything, you know, getting rid of waste appropriately, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So his his suggestion is that Paleolithic or you know early humans – even humans, you know, as as little as two thousand years ago, had schedules where they were far more likely to go for long spans between meals like that, mm-hmm. and that during those longer spans and time off, their bodies would do all this repair work, which would mean that when they did eat, they didn't need to eat high calorie density foods as much. They may need high calorie density foods for you know, fighting the war like Achilles might have needed more higher calories than, you know, mm-hmm. your, your average Joe. But, you know. Right. But it, it really – it depended on what their – what they were doing and what their lifestyles were, how many calories you actually needed. They're also – their foods were more nutrient-dense at that time just by virtue of the fact that they were organic gardening. They had no other options. There were far fewer humans – to garden for, and the soils were not being depleted, at least not nearly as rapidly as they are today. I mean, we do have evidence, um, and I you can't quote me on this because I know that my 
memory is fuzzy on it. I want to say it was, there was, I think it was, I think it was Veloto talking about there being evidence that part of why the Mayan empire fell was that they depleted the soils in the farming areas around the city that they, that their, their main city. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing happened in Europe in ancient Rome. I can't remember for sure where they just, they depleted, they had the population base that they had in the city grew and grew and grew. And then they reached out, you know, to get foods from the farms. The farms went a little bit further, but because of the amount of transportation they could do, there was a limit to how far you could really, right. there was no refrigeration and that sort of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And they forced the land to produce more and more crops and didn't do crop rotation and started doing things that looked more like monocropping mm-hmm. and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and depleted the soil, which then meant there was no food for the city, which caused the city to atrophy. Hey, did you get over to see the Herbs in Action Summit? Did you see the great website they have? Mudpot Design created all of it. They know how to make an idea and a short, in, in a short term turn it into a business. If you have an idea or a company that needs a website that isn't some cookie-cutter freebie web service, Mudpod Design can help you out. They offer free consults to help you focus your idea, or if you have a good website, try to make it even better. And, more importantly, get found with SEO services. If you're in the, in the need for website or marketing services, check out mudpodesign.com. The, it's interesting because as you were speaking, I was thinking about what the modern problem is, carbon sequestration mm-hmm. and the ability for soil to hold so much carbon. Yeah. Um, and we don't have that now because um, the commercial farming, um, if you look at the soil, you pick it up, it's, it's dirt. I mean, it's gray. It doesn't have worms in it. It doesn't have bugs in it. It doesn't have yeah. humus. doesn't have anything in it. It's just a vehicle to hold the plants, and then they get fertilized. Right. And we had read a book um, last year called Kiss the Ground, which, you know, brought all that to the light and yeah. wanting to move us back into that, like you said, the crop rotation, putting livestock back in the fields, doing those things uh, to, um, you know, make uh, that breadbasket um productive again like it was i mean you know the funny thing is for for thousands of years the buffalo roamed and they 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 pooped all over the place and the hooves trampled it in and mulched it in and then there was winter and the whole thing and they were part of that whole system yeah and And all those plants had grown up right and then they died and then they went back in and you know and it was was just this natural system and then these massive prairies were just loaded with this thick dirt and by the time that i think with the drought and by the time that we got to the the Dust Bowl, I mean, it was it was starting to go. And then now it's, geez, that soil doesn't hold water, doesn't do anything. And I think we need to make a, we need to make a shift. Yeah. I know there will be a lot of people out there that, that don't agree. But you know what? If you don't agree, that's fine. But at least read the book and then, then tell me if you agree or disagree. Right. Well, reading Kiss the Ground was part of what inspired me to work on getting a CSA yeah. and just committing ourselves to doing that. Because I know that I'm not a great gardener. I mean, we planted a few things like the tomatoes and the, I wanted to make my own pickles. So we did a few of those things, but I'm not attentive enough to be able to produce enough crops to feed my family all year round. So my solution was I'm going to 
buy a share of this, the produce from a local farm where I know they're gardening organic. I know they're not monoculturing mm-hmm. their crops, you know, and they're small. And they're offering this particular <clears throat> farm offers young people an opportunity to um, get credits for their high school program, but also to learn a trade right. and explore whether or not they themselves want to follow in the footsteps of someone like Tony. Mm-hmm. So to me, that was – that supports my community, that supports the, the people involved in the farming and it is, supports the earth and all of that and gives me you know, a variety of good vegetables that I wouldn't otherwise be able to produce myself because I'm just not that good. <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And it was because of Kiss the Ground that I finally – I mean it's not that I didn't intellectually know that was a good thing and you know, I've done CSAs off and on through the years. But that was the point where after reading that book that I decided, nope, we're committing to this. We're going to do this every single year. That's just the way this is going to have to roll. Right. And I feel like I'm more – it was not too long after – Making that commitment and, you know, signing up for the CSA it was actually the second year that I'd signed up where I was for the first time. That was like the first time I did a CSA two years in a row from the same place. So for me, that was like that was the point of real commitment where I actually really said, yep, I'm doing this again. I'm not going to change my mind. I'm actually serious about this for the rest of my life. And that was the point where Tony walked into my life mm. and I had an opportunity to taste the herbs that he's growing. And, you know, honestly, I was astounded because, yeah. you know, I've tasted good herbs that have come straight out of the field. I've had ones that, you know, like nettles that grow wild and then are just doing their thing. His were every bit as good, if not better. They're just, they feel like plants that have been really cared for. Yeah. Well, if you want to um, visit our website, there's a little ad on the side um, for sacredblossomfarm.com. Oh, yeah. You can go there and you'll find a coupon code that you can use when if you decide that you want to buy some of his herbs. Yeah. And then as a side note, we get a little bit of um, um, affiliate on that. So um, we hope that you do it just because the herbs are great, but then it also helps benefit benefits um, Real Herbalism Radio, the Practical Herbalist, and the Herbal Learning Society. So yes, and I'll make things. sure that we put the discount code in the show notes too okay. so that if people go to his site even without using the link from our website – they can use the discount code and get there, get a person. I think it's fifteen percent off or something, something like, like that. that. All right. Well, hey, we do have a question this week. Ooh, herbal one hundred and one question. Yay! So I don't have really cool any uh, herbal one hundred and one music. Da 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 da. Herbal one hundred and one. So this comes from J E, and I'm not, I I'll just say J E. And he's wondering if strawberry plants that obtain from irregular commercial locations can have their leaves used instead of wild strawberry leaves. And generally curious about the extent and type of differences. Thank you, and you have a super impressed with your website. Well, J.E., Candice, what's the guy to do if he buys a commercial strawberry plant? <laughs> commercial strawberry plant leaves are can be used in the same way. They have the same properties as wild strawberry leaves. That's the simple answer. Right. Would the you... more complex answer on that is... Wild strawberry leaves are wild, so they're in the wild, so they are more potent. Probably going to be more potent. They've had to work harder to survive than domestic strawberries. Domestic cultivated strawberries. Yes. The second part is when we hybridize, which is what all domestic strawberries are, we select 
for, and, and I'm talking about those who are not doing like genetic manipulation with microscopes and. No, crossbreeding. But crossbreeding, when we're crossbreeding cross and, yeah. and all of that and hybridizing that way, we're selecting for the biggest, juiciest, sweetest strawberries. Right. The fruit. Yeah. Which means that we're selecting away from sturdy leaves with lots of constituents and health in them. And, and opting for larger fruit. Yes. So that means the plants that result in a domestically grown one are going to have much tastier fruit, which may actually be more full of nutrients and that sort of thing, but it may not because it's also going to have a lot more water. You know, the big, juicy, tasty strawberries have more water to them than the little tiny wild strawberries. Yeah. The tiny wild strawberries also tend to be a little bit more on the sour side as compared to the big, tasty, juicy strawberries that you get from the strawberry patch that the farmer grew. Right, because they're not maximized for sweetness. Right. So the hybridized ones or the domestic strawberries are going to have a higher percentage of water and sweetness or sugars, natural sugars, but still sugars, and a lower percentage of other types of nutrients because the plant's busy creating all right. that water and, you know, all of that. So, yes, you can definitely use domestic strawberries and domestic strawberry leaves medicinally. And I have done that many times. I can tell you my own experience with dealing – using strawberry leaves um, in a tincture form to deal with canker sores has been extraordinary. And I was using domestic mm -hmm. strawberries out of my yard. I mean, to be fair, yeah. to be fair, <laughs> my yard is – not well watered, <laughs> not well tended. Which we've discussed. Which we've discussed. But even with all of that said, they were still very much domestic strawberries. I think they were California seaside strawberries. Right. So really big, giant, juicy right. fruits. Yeah. And I used the leaves from those. I picked them before the strawberries had begun. They had just begun to bloom, but they hadn't started fruiting yet. So I picked a bunch of leaves. I made a folk-style method tincture and then used the tincture in a blend with um, – I think I used uh, lawn daisies as well. And I mixed the two together in the blend and then I used that for canker sores. They were ones that I had but then also at the time my son was about five years old and he was having a canker sores – off and on. And I can't remember if there was stress in his life or what the deal was, but they were happening. They were really unpleasant. He was willing to take the tincture and swish it around, which is what you do in this particular mm -hmm. case. It did the job. It's very painful when you first do it, just as rubbing anything on a canker sore <laughs> is very painful. But it cleared them up very, very fast. And so he was willing to do it multiple times through that year each time they came up because it worked the first time. And we're talking about a kid who is not really willing to withstand pain for any reason. Oh, so, like his father. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yes, strawberry leaves can be used medicinally whether they're wild or not. If you have the opportunity to use wild strawberry leaves, I would recommend it. But right. if what you've got is the domestic, go for it. Perfect. All right. Well, till next time, put, put an herb, herb on it. it. The statements made about herbs and products on this podcast have not been evaluated by the United States Food and Drug Administration, FDA, and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. All information provided on this podcast or any affiliated websites is for informational purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for advice from your physician or other healthcare professional. 
You should not use the information on this podcast and its affiliated websites for a diagnosis or treatment of any health problem. Always consult with a healthcare professional before starting any new vitamins, supplements, diet, or exercise program before taking any medication, or if you have or suspect you might have a health problem. Any testimonials, questions, or case studies are based on individual results and do not constitute a guarantee that you will achieve the same results.